All right, Revelation 6 is our passage. You can open your Bibles there. I uh, would encourage you uh, to do so. Uh, I mentioned last week that this is where the controversy begins in Revelation. Um, you know, the, the controversy has all to do with the timing of the events that, that John sees. In, in chapters 1 through 5, right, references to time have been uh, relatively clear. Uh, the book of Revelation begins with John as a prisoner on the island of Patmos, and he sees this vision of Jesus. Basically, he was there on the Lord's Day, and God basically interrupted his life and showed him this vision of Jesus. Um, chapter 1 of, of Revelation, you'd summarize it, I'd just call it a vision of Jesus. It introduces the apocalyptic genre of the book of Revelation, where Jesus appears with, with a hair white like wool, like snow, and eyes like a flame of fire, and feet like burnished bronze, and a voice like the sound of, of many waters. And the idea of chapter 1, it sets up Jesus as the powerful one who can execute his judgment upon the earth. Though on earth he was gentle and lowly, now he is strong and mighty. The events of chapter 1 just really happened during John's day. It happened when John was on Patmos as a prisoner, a vision of Jesus which transcends time. In chapters 2 and 3, we have letters to the churches that John dictated, um, these churches in, in Asia Minor. And hopefully, right, you're able to say these churches, right? Say them with me. The churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I would summarize chapter 2 as a letters to the churches. The, the people in these churches were the original recipients of the book of, of Revelation, and you need to really keep that in mind. These were persecuted people, uh, people going through difficult, difficult, hard times, and through our exposition of chapters 2 and 3, I also have to continually remind you that these are real people in real churches. Jesus directed his comments toward them, commending them for their good and correcting them for the things they need to change in their lives. And our church, right, as application-wise, ought to as well, right? Pursue the things that Jesus commends and forsake the things that Jesus condemns. Now, there's some controversy regarding the timing of these events. I mentioned that, that some people take these churches as descriptive of the major movements of history. It's called the historical ages interpretation. Just kind of going through here quick, right? You've got the church at Ephesus, right? Till about 100 AD when the persecution in the apostolic church was, was rampant, people say. And then, then they say the church at Smyrna, that's a persecuted church from 100 to 313 AD until the Edict of Toleration loosened the persecution. And then you had some other churches going you know, from 313 until the Reformation, just a time of apostasy and a time of false teaching. And then the, the time of the Reformation is a time of uh, deadness in the church. And then you have this missionary expansion, they say, with Philadelphia. And then finally, you've got Laodicea, the apostate wealthy church. There's some who would interpret Revelation like that. I just expose that to you and say, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's right. Just it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. I mean, the apostolic church was not a church who'd lost their first love primarily. They were willing to die for Christ. Also, the time of the Reformation wasn't a dead church. It was budding life. It was growing and thriving. And Philadelphia, right, was that small church. But here's the missionary movement. It's expanding. It's growing. And Laodicea, the wealthy church in America, perhaps, but not across the world. But I mention this to show you the sorts of controversies they have with time and interpreting the book of, of Revelation. But, but I, again, these were real churches that were written, that, that, that John wrote to. These were churches in Turkey. You've seen this graph before, uh, this chart before, about those seven churches there in uh, Asia Minor. They, they kind of formed a little mail route, if you will. And John, when he wrote it, was right in Patmos, just right across the sea 
from these places of where these, these people were. It was real, real people. So I don't think there was much controversy in terms of time. In Revelation 2 and 3 that we have uh, letters to these churches. Next, in the book of Revelation 4 and 5, we have a vision of heaven. Chapter 4 describes the, the setting of, of the throne in heaven. And chapter 5 then speaks about the drama that took place around the throne. And, and this throne is described as being majestic, like a, a sea of grass, glass like crystal was before the throne, and an emerald rainbow around the throne. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And the one sitting on the, the throne was like a shiny, precious jewel. Around the throne, 24 other thrones upon which sat elders in, in white garments. And, and then they had these four living creatures. They're unlike any being we'd ever seen before. With six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then in chapter 5, we see the drama unfold. The one on the throne had the this this scroll in his hand sealed up with seven seals. The scroll was written on front and on back, and the dilemma in heaven was simply this. Who can open the scroll? Right? Who can save us? Who can, who can open up God's plan for judgment upon the earth? And no one was found worthy to open the scroll, and it, it led John to tears. Finally, one of the elders said to John, Revelation 5, 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looked, and rather than seeing a lion, he saw a lamb who had been slain, and this lamb took the scroll from the one who was upon the throne, and heaven erupts with praise. Revelation 6, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And pretty soon after that, we see the praise of... To, to, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be glory and honor and blessing forever and ever. And this is our redemption. This is our hope. The, the hope is that Lamb came and He took the scroll and He accomplished our redemption for us. And we can look to this Lamb who was crucified but raised again. It's our hope that not that we are worthy, but that Jesus is worthy. His death and burial and resurrection satisfied the wrath of God for us in in our place, that we might be one with Him. And the gospel is really to embrace this reality. Embrace, embrace Christ as the worthy one, and not us. That Christ died for our sins so that we didn't have to die. All right, so now we come to chapter 6. Right? And chapter 6 really carries over from chapter 5. And that entire chapter, chapter 5, is focused upon um, the scroll. And in chapter 6, then, we see this scroll. In chapter 5, we, we saw in verse 1, we saw this scroll. I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, on, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And these seals, then, become the, the topic of what's going to happen in chapter 6. We see the scroll and we see the Lamb starting to open each of these seals, you know, slitting them. These seals were, were wax on there with the imprint of, of the Almighty, uh, of God, and, and only one who could uh, take them off is one who's worthy of that. So the title of my message this morning is Opening the Scrolls. Oops, I just missed it. Opening the Scrolls. My slides aren't quite right, but that's okay. Um, what we're going to see in Revelation 6 is opening scrolls. We see the Lamb opening these seals. Now, before we read the text, you've got you to catch this, that we have 
the backbone of Revelation, we have these seals, and we have the trumpets, and we have the bowls. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. Say it with me, right? Seals, trumpets, and bowls. Say it again. Seals, trumpets, and bowls. This is like, like the structure of Revelation. We're going to come with some seals, and come with some trumpets, and come with some bowls. These are the, the judgments that are coming uh, in Revelation. The, the seals come in Revelation chapter 6. The trumpets come in, in 8 through 9. And the bowls are mentioned in chapter 16. Now between these chapters, right, there's somewhat of a, an interlude, a, a respite if you will. Right? After the, the seals are broken and God's judgment comes and there's a little relaxation in chapter 7. And then chapter 8 and 9 they come again. And then there's a little bit of a, an interlude. And then chapter 16 they come again. And then Revelation then finishes up. Now, regarding these seals and trumpets and bowls, you have seven of each of these. You have seven seals, and you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls. And each time a seal is opened, or a trumpet is blown, or a bowl is poured out, you see God's judgment being enacted and worked upon the earth. And this is where there's great debate regarding when these things take place. There are those who would take all of these events as sequential in time. So this is the picture of Revelation that they see. Right there you see the time frame. you got Christ on the cross, and then sometime later, I didn't have enough picture on the screen, but like where this might be on the time frame, we don't know. But, but there are Revelation 6, we have the seals, and Revelation 8 and 9, we have the, the trumpets, and then in Revelation 16, we have the scrolls. But there are others who would interpret this differently, and I'm just mentioning this because you've got to know how it's interpreted so you can understand some of the, the theological implications of how you might take a passage and interpret it. There are some who take these as simultaneous. So in other words, right, the, 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 the seals describe one pass of history. And then the trumpets, like another pass of God's judgment. And then the bowls, another pass of God's judgment. As if they're all like, like simultaneous, but, but John merely sees them from a different angle. So it's been described before that you're at a you're at a big baseball game or a football game or something like that. And, and, and if you're on the, the sidelines and you see a play, you see it differently than you see it from the end zone. You see it a little bit differently. Then you see it from the press box. You see all the same events happening at the same time. And, and that's how people see Revelation and they take it. And, and I just expose this to you that there's different ways of people taking Revelation. And it's apocalyptic and so it's super difficult. So if you take that top view where there are the seals, trumpets, and blows, and everything goes sequentially. Um, well then, by the time you get to Revelation 20, which is where the big um, debate is, right? a thousand years of Christ reigning on the earth, then what you have is you've got the millennium after that. Mila, meaning a, a thousand. This is a thousand years after that. So those who believe that things are sequentially will naturally be looking at things right, that happened before the millennium, and these would be called premillennialists because it's before the millennium. However, if you view the, the timeline, like the, the timeline below, where all these events, like you're going to go through the judgments, going to go through it again and again, and they kind of scope. Um, and, and there's different levels of scope, whether it's scoping the whole of church history, or whether it's scoping just an end time, uh, bringing, ramping up. They're not exactly sure, but there, there's different views of that. But if you view it this way, then the millennium then comes down here because the millennium is just another recapitulation of the same events. And so, therefore, if this is what your view is, then you would be known as amillennial. Better as nuke millennial, like now 
millennium. That would be your view if you've been all millennialist. Because you see that the millennium there, though maybe not a thousand years, because taken symbolically in light of uh, apocalyptic literature, is just the same sort of thing. So now if you hear premillennial, you understand that's a sequential working out of the book of Revelation. And an all-millennial is, is like this story is told again and again and again. And I would urge you to know, right, um, that both of these views, people are going at their Bibles because they really trust their Bibles. I've heard many people say, oh, millennials, oh, they're, they're liberal, right? They just, they just take everything as symbolic and allegorical. I'm saying, no, they don't. I would encourage you to respect all millennialists. For instance, let's, let's look back at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Right, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Did you notice the tense of those verbs there? They're past. Jesus ransomed us with his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom and priests. Past tense, what Jesus has done for us. In, in other words, right, the amillennialist who sees this believes that to be true right now. The kingdom of Christ has been established. It's the tense in verse 10. And the parallels back in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he's made us a kingdom and priest to our God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Right, right now we're kingdom and priests. And basically the amillennial says that we're in the kingdom now pulling from passages of Scripture. Then paralleled in Revelation 20, which speaks about this millennial reign. During the reign of Christ, they will be priests to of our God, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Well, are we priests or not? Is it all in the future, or is it here? And I'm just saying that the amillennialists um, just embrace these things biblically, and they just say there's where it is. Now, personally, I'm not convinced of that. I'm a premillennialist. However, I have great respect for the millennials, and working through Revelation, I would encourage you to be respectful of other views of Revelation regarding the time because we just don't know many of the things. Now, that's, by the way, a huge simplification of millennial, right? but I want you to capture that and understand it to see there's different ways of approaching the text. Just to orient you again with the backbone of Revelation with the seals, trumpets, and bulls. Okay, so with that long introduction, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched, and again, right, you got to catch this, is that John is recording what he sees. What he sees is what he sees, and then his interpretation and the symbolic meaning of all these things is something else. So let's just see what he sees. He's now watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. 
And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation 6 describes the opening of the The first six seals. The seventh seal comes in chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. We'll come to that in a few weeks. But today we look at the six seals. So kids, right? If I have six seals, how many points am I going to have? Six points, right? Here's my first point. First point is uh, opening the scroll, opening the seals, the white horse Again, one, verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now this is the first of four horses that, that John sees in his vision. These four horses are often known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, each of them bring a, a portion of God's judgment upon the earth. And and I think it's best to look at the judgment that each horseman brings. And so we're just going to do that, right? Regarding the white horse, we see him conquering. Um, He has a bow in his hand. He's given a crown to place on his head. He came out conquering and to conquer is what verse 2 says. Now, some have taken this to be Jesus because they've read ahead and read in Revelation 19 how Jesus comes on on a white horse coming to make war. I believe it betrays the context, really, of these four horses. I I don't think this is Jesus um, on the throne. So I I looked for four horsemen of the apocalypse. Many of them had a picture of Jesus was the white one. But I think like all the horses are like in cahoots with one another. I don't think that Jesus was coming to conquer to judge, really, at that moment. I I think it best to take the white horse as a, a Christ pretender, a false Christ, if you will, one who may look like Jesus, but conquering for a different kingdom. And I say this primarily because of the words of, of Matthew 24. Now, we looked at this passage uh, briefly last week. If you want to hold your finger in Revelation 6, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. I do believe that the key to interpreting the, the seals has to do with Matthew 24 because everything lines up just parallel as can be. But if you look at, at Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus is asked, what's the sign of your coming in verse 3? And listen to what Jesus said. He says this in verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. A rider in a white horse, looking like Jesus, 
not Jesus. Conquering and conquer, but not for God's kingdom. I think that's the best way to interpret this, just letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Because when we see verse 6 and following, we see the same thing in the, of the other horsemen. Verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus mentions wars and famines and death. Exactly what we see in the other horses right, that we see here in, um, in, in Revelation 6. The first one, the white horse, is coming to conquer. The red horse is going to bring wars. The black horse is going to bring famine. And the pale horse is going to bring death. Exactly what Jesus says here. Just I think the parallel of theirs are enough that just saying this white horse is probably a false Christ, not the Christ. But like many things in Revelation, I just encourage you to hold it loosely. If you have a friend who says, no, this is Jesus, embrace him and love him as a brother. All right, let's look at the second horse. We've got the, the red horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And by the way, right, these four living creatures all announce, all bring on the coming of these horses. And they came another horse, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This horse speaks of a, of a time of conflict when the horse will take peace from the earth. Whatever peace was there, he, he's got the ability and the authority to take it away. And, and the red horse brings in a, a worldwide warfare where those on the earth are, are slaying one another. And this is exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus says in verse 6, there'll be wars and there'll be rumors of wars. The red horse brings wars. Let's go on to the black horse. Just want to describe these and then I want to go back and reflect upon some meanings of what they might be. So we move on to the black horse in verses 5 through 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. Now for us this might be a little difficult to understand. Like we don't typically go around and buy a quart of, of wheat or three quarts of barley. Like how much does three quarts of barley go for nowadays? Andy, you might know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but a denarius, we don't use a denarius, but a denarius is a, a common day's wage. Right? So it takes an entire day's wage to purchase a quart of wheat. A quart of wheat makes maybe a loaf of bread. Maybe feeds you a little bit of your house. But the point is that a worker can't even feed his family. The black horse brings famine. And the fact this black horse was not to destroy the oil and the wine, I think it's a demonstration of God's control over these judgments. Like, think about it, it's, it's a bit like God discussing with Satan about Job. Um, he says, well, you can take his family, don't touch him. Well, you can touch him, but don't kill him. Like, this far you can go, but no further. And so likewise here, the black horse brings famine, but the oil and the wine still flow. And then we have the pale horse in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill the sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. The pale horse brings death. And in fact, we read here, the horse brings his death plague to a fourth on the earth. Even if, if you look at here, he's, 
He's killed not only with a sword, but he somehow, this pale horse, has the power to kill with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. Right? That begins to give you a hint that this wasn't a, a, a real horse, right, who, who's going out able to, like this horse has the ability then to inflict this plague upon people. He can't, but it's, it's an idea, right? It's a picture. It's apocalyptic. And, and capture the apocalyptic, right? Don't press the imagery too far, but somehow, when this, this seal is opened, this pale horse comes, and this sword, right? There's war still continuing from the, the second seal, and then there's, there's famine and pestilence and wild beasts. And the big question is this, right? Have these things taken place? Are they yet to come to take place? And I say resounding, I don't know, right? And for sure, these things in the four horsemen... There are some things in these four horsemen that have taken place. With the, the white horse, the false Christ risen up. Many false Christs have risen up since the day of Christ, claiming to be the Messiah. I mean, shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, there's a, a historian, his name is Josephus, and he writes about the history of the Jews, and he describes several men who rose up claiming to be the new Messiah. Of course, they weren't. And in our day and age, I've known some who've risen up as well. Such a plague has always been with us, right? There's nothing special or in the future about false Christ coming or about this, this white horse or bringing people, trying to deceive, trying to build a different kingdom. That's just always been. So the red horse, the wars that come, there's always been wars. In fact, in reality, the world has never known peace. You, you can kind of Google, like, how many... How many years has uh, the world known peace since the time of Jesus? And the Pax Romana was, was pretty good because Rome controlled everything. There was some peace. But then after that, like there's been, there's almost always wars going on. The world has hardly ever known peace. Not in the days of Jesus. Not the days shortly after Jesus when Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem. Not now. I mean, shortly after Jesus ascended, Jerusalem was sacked. Surrounded by the Romans in 70 AD and taken and destroyed. Throughout history, there's always been wars. Our country is known for war, right? We, we know the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Our world has experienced two world wars. Right now, there's a major war in Ukraine, which could lead to World War III. There's nothing special or future necessarily about, about wars. With the Black Horse and famine, there, there's always been seasons of famine upon the earth. In Bible times, Acts chapter 11, Agabus foretold of a famine that take place over all the world, and it took place in the days of Claudius, in our day. There are current famines today in Yemen and Sudan and Ethiopia. And the problem isn't lack of food. The problem is getting the food there. But still, it's a famine, and people are dying of starvation. There's nothing special or, or has to be necessarily future about the black horse or the pale horse. And widespread death. There's always been times, right? There's been times when, when war and disease have traveled throughout the whole earth. And in fact, the, the bubonic plague in the 1300s, um, 30 to 60 percent of the European population died. It's a lot. Some estimates would say that even half of the earth died in that plague. Some might look at this and then say, well, you know, that that black horse, right, bringing the plague. Oh, it had to be fulfilled in the bubonic plague. Well, partially, but, but plagues have always been around us. We just went through a worldwide pandemic 
which could have been worse. Can you just imagine what happened if COVID was a little bit worse and started killing people like the bubonic plague did? Like we can see it spread with air travel. I mean, there, there's always been plague. There's always been difficulty with that. Now, so I just say this, right? There's nothing special or must be future about the pale horse. So I, I, I look at these seals. I look at these horsemen that come out like, you know what? Maybe they've come... Um, maybe they're referring to things. Maybe there's some escalation of that in the future, but I'm not necessarily even tied to any of that. I just know it's difficult to know the times, and I'm not sure when these events. We just need to wait for some future fulfillment, perhaps. But, but I know this, that God has it all under control. I'm not worrying myself about, you know, these wars that are coming. I, I'm not, even, even I, I warned you all last week, right, not to take current events and say, oh, Jesus is coming really soon, right? When's Jesus coming? He's coming soon right not really soon right not very very soon but i was talking to someone this week and uh, asked what i was preaching through oh i the times i think the times are upon us i think jesus is coming right really soon i'm like this wasn't guy from a church but i'm just saying jesus is coming soon and we don't know when that is but don't don't get where i'm i'm not worried about oh well whether the horse is calm or not i just know this describes our world it's a broken world in need of redemption, and God has got it all under control, which we especially see here in the fifth seal, which I'm simply calling the martyrs. I love the lesson the martyrs teach us. When you open the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These verses take us in verse 9 to see those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. We call these martyrs. And we find their souls under the altar crying out for vengeance verse 10. I find it interesting that many Christians, Christian martyrs, die willingly for the sake of Christ. When Stephen preached and was stoned to death, his last words right, were words of mercy and salvation. He, 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 he fell to his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Then he fell asleep to his death. Praying just like Jesus did, right? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Many martyrs die with mercy, salvation, prayers for God to be gracious on their lips. In July of 1415, when John Huss was tied to the stake and given one last chance to recount his beliefs, he responded, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. He was soon put to death after that. Last chance, word of mercy came out of his mouth. October of 1536, William Tyndale's final words before the chain around his neck strangled him to death was this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Just longing for salvation. And then they die willingly. But in heaven, under the altar, we see a change in disposition. Rather than praying for salvation and mercy upon those who put them to death, we have words seeking vengeance and judgment They cried, verse 10, out with a loud voice. There's passion there. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's an appropriate prayer. Jesus, God says, uh, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And Revelation, by the way, is a book about vengeance and retribution for those who fail to repent of their sins and follow Jesus. The souls who are under the altar merely echo the theme of Revelation. Right? I mean, the horses that, that went out wreaking havoc on the earth are merely the beginnings of birth pangs, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 8. As the book of Revelation unfolds, we're going to see God protecting His people, chapter 7 next week, and we're going to see Him pouring out His vengeance upon the unrepentant, which is what the martyrs are basically praying. Right? They're praying, God, God, avenge those who killed us. And it brings us really to a point of application, right? Are you one of those who receive the, the favor of God through faith in Christ? Are you one of those upon whom the wrath of God and His judgment will come because you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus? The, these men right, submitted themselves to Christ and, and were killed for it. And now they're, they're waiting. Take vengeance upon those who are still against you and your kingdom. And really the best way for you to answer that question is to look at your life of worship where it was the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's what the Spirit does in you. And so I'm just asking you, is the Spirit working in you to demonstrate fruit in your life? Giving you godly desires and, and appetites. Are you overcoming the world, right? We looked at the message of Jesus to the churches. They all had this admonition. To him who overcomes, they will eat from the tree of life. To him who overcomes, I will not take his name away from the book of life. Right? To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. Right? So the one who continues to endure and follow the ways of Christ. It's a call of revelation. Right? Despite the speculation, despite the mystery of all these things, and despite the timing of all the seals and all that, I'd say wipe that all away and, and realize this. You need the call of revelation is to remain faithful to Christ not to receive God's vengeance upon yourself. In Matthew 24, talking about the signs of His coming, Jesus talked about how the lawlessness was increasing and how how the, the love of many was growing cold. But then He gives the promise, but to the one who endures to the end, I will, he will be saved. Right? Revelation's all about enduring to the end, right? To these persecuted people, persevere through the persecution and trust that God's going to avenge those who are against Him. In Revelation 12, verse 11, we read about those enduring to the end. And they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The example is given even in Revelation of of loving their lives not even unto death. Faithfulness to the end, possible martyrdom, is the message of Revelation to the original readers, to those in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They, they were living in difficult times. John described himself as a partner in the tribulation with them, Revelation 1, verse 9. And some were facing death, and they were called to endure. And I love the response that comes to these martyrs. We don't know who says this, whether it's God, whether it's the Lamb, whether it was an angel, somehow they got this message. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're told to wait. They're told to wait, not for a time, 
It says, don't wait for three months, right? That was the message to, uh, um, to Smyrna, be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life, right? For 10 days, right, you're going to have tribulation, but be faithful after 10 days, I'm going to give you the crown of life after they kill you. But the message here to these martyrs is different. It's not 10 days, it's not 10 months, it's not 15 years persevere. Wait until this number, until we reach this number, right? Until these other martyrs would join in them, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So think about this. God knows the number of martyrs that will lose their lives for the sake of Christ. And that number's not yet been reached because vengeance hasn't yet been poured out upon those who destroyed God's people. But God knows the number of the martyrs. And this number's increasing. Like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but, but day by day, there are, are Christians being murdered for their faith. In fact, I just encourage you to be familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. If you aren't familiar with it, right, Google it, get on some, some email list or, or something. Here's just a, a prayer guide that Darren has been faithful to hand things out. I know he's got some resources. If, he will have some resources for you if he's got he, he gave this to me. It's just right here in the middle, right? Pray for the persecuted. It's, it's just all these countries that are, are restricted or hostile, you know, and I'm just... I'm just turning back to a country like Laos. It's a restricted country. The communist government, in conjunction with Buddhist monks, persecutes Christians. Um, with the exception of the government-controlled Lao Evangelical Church. And they just make outreach difficult. Or, or let's like, like another one, like just even, even coming here to um, Kazakhstan. It's It's restricted. And it just, it's just difficult for Christians to go forward. There, there are some here that are hostile. Like I saw, I think it was India in here that was hostile. India. Here we go. Hostile. And I know, Brian, you've got a good friend, Paul Victor, right, who's faced a lot of this hostility. And we go in a long time think about all the hostility he's facing. Right today, in our day and age, he's facing this hostility. If you're interested in that, you can talk with Brian. But here, in India, they're, they're really hostile to the gospel. In fact, I remember, you know, I'm praying about perhaps going again to Nepal and India. And by the way, we're going there because it's hard, because it's difficult, because people there need super encouragement. Um, but I remember I was about to speak at a church one time, and Bob Clinton even called. Uh, and he told Joel, he said, Joel, like, it's, it's illegal to convert somebody. If they figure out what's going on there, Steve maybe shouldn't do that. And Joel's like, no, no it's okay, because it was a smaller church. He knew what was going on. I went ahead and preached. But, like, there's this there's undercurrent, right? It's illegal to convert away from, from uh, Hinduism, particularly in, in Nepal. And people get in trouble and jailed. And I've read stories about people. And that's happening today. And it's happening today because people are bold for their witness. I, just even challenge you, are you bold for your witness? Could you be killed? I'm just trying to think. I don't even know any Christian martyrs, genuine Christian martyrs in America who are bold in their witness have been killed for their sake, for their following Christ. We've got a government that's tolerant of that. Oh, the, the Colorado baker, you know, maybe he's faced some persecution, but it's not come to death. Maybe financial bankruptcy, which is bad, but not death. But God's protected him. But if anything, right, this number speaks about God's sovereignty. He's got a number. There, there are other people in this world who are going to die for the na- sake of Christ. He knows the names. He knows the numbers. 
and the fifth seal, right? Re- regarding the time of the fifth seal. I think the fifth seal has been happening since the days of Christ. I think Stephen is one of those under the altar pleading for God to take vengeance. I think John Huss is, William Tyndale, John Rogers. Like these men of the, the Reformation, these heroes are under the altar and they're just saying, God, pour out your vengeance, right? Come and, and establish it and do it. And... In some regards, I, I think that's been happening. I'm not sure this is a, a future thing. However, you get the sense here that right, the, the number's getting close. He says, I've got to wait wait till we return. He's not reached that number yet. There's more to be killed. And when that number's reached, then it appears that's the time that God is going to avenge. Maybe that's prophesied here in the, the sixth seal. So let's look at the sixth seal. This is this we will finish. I'm simply calling it cosmic disturbances because that's what happens. He's these cosmic disturbances. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a, a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of a Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This great sixth seal is seemingly mounting up. Now, I don't think that the sixth seal has accomplished, has been has, has come to pass yet. There are some who look back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and see, like, like talking about stars falling and just say, hey, this is talking about world rulers sort of falling, and they, you let the Bible interpret the Bible, but I just, I just can't see it. I, I, I think this is going to be a cataclysmic sort of event that's going to happen in the future. This is totally in the future. This is exactly what Jesus said. Again, if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, very parallel to this, when he speaks there at the end, He says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars fall from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We we see a a similar thing here, right? There's there's earthquake that shakes everything, the the sun goes dark, and, and the moon goes dark, becomes like blood, turns to red, stars of the sky fall to the earth. Now again, this is what John sees. I have no idea how stars can fall from the sky being right, hundreds of thousands of millions of light years away, how they star- fall from the sky. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But the sky, how the sky vanishes like a scroll. It's being rolled up. Every mountain and island removed from its place. Right, The, the Rockies are, are sea level and, and the islands are, are gone. It's cosmic disturbances. And Jesus anticipated this. Now, how this works out, I have no idea. Whether all this is literal, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I was listening this week to a, a podcast that had a, a guy who was escaping the fo- fires in Maui. And uh, he described to save his life, he had to jump into the ocean. And it was so hot and they're so smoky and it was difficult. And he's got friends who can't swim and all this stuff like that. And he commented on oh, how he looked up. And he saw like all this ash and all this stuff. He says it was all dark and it looked like the stars were falling from the sky, is what he said. That's, that's like what he saw. And so this is what John sees. How much of this actually is there? I, I don't know. 
And if someone says, well, this is just, God's going to cover the earth darkness and the stars from millions of miles away are actually not going to come to, I'm okay with that. But it's some sort of cosmic disturbance that is going to take place when the number of these martyrs is all filled up. And then the response of these people. Like, You've you got to catch this. How people respond to the return of Christ. I, I talked to you last week in, Revel, in uh, Titus chapter 2 how the return of Christ is our blessed hope. It was not the blessed hope for these people. It was the blessed dread. And these are the powerful, right? The kings of the earth. The great ones. The generals. The rich and the powerful. Along with the slaves and everyone who is free. Now these are people presumably who'd shaken their fists at God and wanted nothing to do with God. These are the unrepentant upon the earth. This is what faces them. They fear the coming of Christ. They, they, they fear, I mean, in the storm... Mike, I, it's interesting when the, the tornado alarm goes off. Yvonne and the family, they all go downstairs. And you know where I go? I go outside to see the storm coming. But I think if I saw this storm coming, I think I'd be downstairs in the basement in a flash. So there's a, there's a fear of this, certainly, that is, is big. But, but the fear here is coming uh, bigger because they, they, hate, they hate God. And they'd rather die than to face Jesus. They hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. You know, this, this just comes from Isaiah chapter 2. Right? The, the same sort of thing that on that day, right? It says, it, it, Isaiah two nineteen and people shall enter the caves, the rocks, and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He comes to, to terrify the earth. This is a common thing that when, when God is coming, people are seeking any sort of refuge that they can find. And, and, and they're fearful of, of the wrath of the Lamb. Now this Lamb comes back to Revelation chapter 5, right? The Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll because He's accomplished our redemption. And in taking that scroll with the martyrs, He's accomplished our salvation. And He's also going to accomplish the judgment of the wicked who would rather die than to face the wrath of the Lamb. Not, they don't know that if they die, then they're going to face the wrath of the Lamb anyway. But, but verse 17 comes with this great question. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? There's a question, right? Who can stand... When the day of the wrath of Christ of the Lamb has come, no one can stand. The day of the Lord. This is, this is the eyes of flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, right? And the sound of, of mighty waters coming out of His mouth. That's the one that people have to deal with, and they are scared and terrified of Him. Oh, when He was on the cross, oh, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? That's not going to be the attitude when Jesus comes back. That's the wrathful lamb. And really, this is the message of the gospel, right? Propitiation. That God has, has turned His wrath away from us through the sacrifice of Christ. What can turn you away? What can keep you from the wrath of a lamb? The sacrifice of a lamb. This lamb who is standing as if he had been slain. Don't miss this lamb. is a crucified, resurrected lamb. And He's the one from whom you can, can be um, freed and, and rescued and stand on the day of wrath which we're going to segue then into chapter 7. These are the ones who are going to stand, the ones who are sealed and protected. It's another theme we're going to see in Revelation, that it's, it's those who are sealed and protected who, 
who can, who can hide from the wrath of the Lamb. Like they're, they're in their bomb shelter. Whatever wrath comes, because they're sealed, because they have their mark on their forehead, their, on the name of God and of the Lamb, God will pass over them just like the Passover. Right? Just because they've applied the blood to the doorhouse, doorposts, the wrath of God passes over them. And that's our only hope. Is that your hope? Do you have the blood of Jesus cleansing you, protecting you from His wrath? And you get that through faith and trusting in Him, repenting and turning from your sins and crying out to Christ. And then you can look towards that blessed day when He comes. And even as I have have uh, summarized Revelation for us, right? The prayer there is, Come, Lord Jesus. These people didn't want Him to come, but those who are believing and trusting in Him are sealed and protected in the, the comfort of the, the wrath, of the, of the, the comfort of Christ. We'll say this, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, and come soon. Let's pray. Father, in this message of judgment, there's also a veiled message of hope. There's a message of hope to those who believe and who are, who are trusting and who are overcoming and who are repenting of their sin and following after Christ and willing to lay down their lives, as Jesus said, to take up the cross to follow you. And so, God, I pray that you would find those of us at Rock Valley Bible Church who are interested in these things, at Revelation and the things of the end, that you would help us with clear minds to understand the, the imagery and to embrace what we can of the reality God, not pushing the metaphor too far, but letting it sink on our souls, not trying to figure it out like a puzzle book, but rejoicing in it as a picture book. And we see the picture here of people fleeing, but yet then we see the joy in heaven of the one who has authority to take the scroll and to open the seals because he was slain and he purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And some of those people are us. Jesus Christ purchased that for us. And with that, all we can do is give you worship because indeed, oh God, you are worthy. Amen.